Give me just a few minutes to get set up here, new platform. It's interesting, the Lord has us in a couple of new places. We're going to be in Ezra this morning, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ezra. We're going to be in Ezra this morning, looking at chapter 1, the first four verses. We're also in a new location. We're thankful for the Claxton Community Center and the time that we've had there, but at least for one week they have banished us into exile, and so here we find ourselves in exile with the, uh, with the Israelites, hopefully returning, hopefully returning in the next week, continue to pray for a location, permanent place for our church. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of Ezra this morning. Ezra chapter 1, starting in the first verse. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we begin a new study and we begin examining your word that you gave before Christ, would you help us to understand that this word still speaks of Christ? And would you help our hearts to be encouraged as we see Christ and as we see your people acting in ways that please you? Help us to be aware of sin and repent of it and turn from it. Return and rebuild as you're going to call your people here in this text to do. And be with us through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning that this word might be effectual and strengthen us for the coming days. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, beloved, back in 2013... A friend at Basswood Church recommended that I read a novel called One Second After by a man named William Forstjen. It's a story about a man named John Matherson, a middle-aged widower who is trying to raise his two daughters in small town Black Mountain, North Carolina. It's not too far away from where we are right now. As the family prepares to celebrate 12-year-old Jennifer's birthday, strange things start to happen. At first, it's nothing too suspicious. A dropped phone call, 
a CD player that stops working. I'm actually interested to know how many children in this room know what a CD player is. But then the family realizes that there's no noise coming from the nearby interstate and no air traffic coming from the airport in Asheville just down the road. When John attempts to go into town to investigate, the lights in his garage won't turn on and his car won't start. Himself, a former history teacher and retired military officer, John begins to suspect an EMP strike. EMP stands for electromagnetic pulse. It's a wave of supercharged electricity and it's caused by setting off a nuclear warhead outside of Earth's atmosphere which sends that wave of electric energy into the atmosphere frying the circuits of any electronic device. His guess turns out to be right, which means it's just a matter of time before no one can find clean water. The grocery stores are completely out of food. Businesses shut down. Hospitals and nursing homes face massive casualties. Enormous gangs are formed. And civilian guerrilla warfare breaks out all across America. And to make it worse, 12-year-old Jennifer has type 1 diabetes. And now John has no way to refrigerate her insulin. I'm not going to spoil any more of the story for you. It is a good read. But I bring it up because in a very significant way, American Christians are already living in an EMP-like dystopia, devoid of the rich Christian heritage of our forefathers. This country, I'm sure you know, was founded on the rich Christian tradition of the West. Men sacrificed their fortunes and lives to establish a place in the world where they could worship as their biblically-minded consciences demanded God honored their obedience, and as a result, the, what I think is unarguably the most advanced and wealthy and free nation in the world developed. And shortly after that, we got smug about it. Slowly over the years, the worship of God became a pastime, and then something for which this country of ours has no time. The church has been in a free fall for a minute, bowing the knee to its new gods, the elites, and job of the state. Do you remember how the seven churches in Revelation are represented? As seven candles before the presence of the Lord. Imagine this country at its Christian zenith. An entire country filled with light. But for the last at least 70 years, because of our disobedience and sin, Jesus has been going church by church and like a spiritual EMP strike, putting out the light of the Holy Spirit in millions of churches across this country, perhaps every single year. So, what does that have to do with Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, I'm glad you asked. God brought his Israel through the wilderness from Egypt to establish a kingdom for his glory. The kingdom, having been established, turned away from their God. 
They sinned by worshiping false gods and making themselves more and more debased. And so God, in his Old Testament people, Israel, turned out the lights. He sent them away to Babylon for what was to be seven decades of captivity. And yet in mercy, you know how the story goes, God released his people so that they might return and rebuild. I ask you a question, church. Why are you in Anderson County right now? Of course, you're not in Anderson County at this very moment. But why are you at a church that regularly meets in Anderson County that is going to serve locally in Anderson County? I submit God has brought each and every one of us that have covenanted with Christ the King to Clinton, Tennessee for this very reason. He has opened perhaps each of our eyes to see this spiritual EMP that he has sent in judgment for the wickedness of the American church. And just like the exiles of Ezra and Nehemiah, he has released us to return and rebuild. Through repentance and returning to Jesus, we who make up Christ the King are here to rebuild Christendom, the Christendom that will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But in order to do that, we need to be strategic about our building and our fighting. We need to think biblically about repenting and rebuilding So we're taking the upcoming months to learn from Ezra and Nehemiah how to build and fight for King Jesus. Now, before I get into the text this morning, I want to offer a little bit of history and also what you might call some pro tips for thinking about preaching and reading through the Old Testament. Before I even hit verse 1, Let's talk about a few hermeneutical considerations to keep in mind. Hermeneutics, by the way, is just a big word for how to read the Bible correctly. It's the study of hermeneutics, how we read our Bibles rightly. Most important of all, and if you don't get one thing that I say this morning, please go home with this. The Old Testament of your Bible is just as authoritative as the New Testament of your Bible. It is just as authoritative. This farcical red-letter Christianity that only wants to hear the words that God spoke, think about that for just a minute, are one of the reasons that we as Christians in America are in the mess that we're in. The Old Testament is God's authoritative word too. Now, I'll give you something super basic to follow that up. This is an interpretive principle, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Dates in the Old Testament go the opposite way. Dates in the B.C. calendar go the opposite way. The further we go in B.C., the lower the number gets. For example, Israel went into exile in 586 B.C., and Cyrus will, this morning we'll read, make a proclamation of the release of the exiles about 50 years later in 538 B.C. By the way, that's 70 years we're waiting for that. Um, the temple would be completed in 516 B.C., marking the end of the prophesied 70 years of exile. Because exile's not over until both the people and God return. 
And that's when the exile concluded, when they began to worship Yahweh again from the second temple. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally thought of as one book. They weren't split up until the creation of the Greek Septuagint, about 150 to 100 BC. And that was Esdras and Nehemiah, was how they pronounced it in the Septuagint version. In the Hebrew canon... Ezra and Nehemiah came before 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You'll notice um, that in your Bibles, it's, uh, excuse me, um, in the Hebrew canon, Ezra and Nehemiah came after, or came before 2nd Chronicles. Um, the Chronicles are the most recent or latest writing in the Old Testament, and they were put last. So the Old Testament would have originally gone from Genesis to 2nd Chronicles. It's difficult to say who wrote Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles. There's no biblical attestation of the authorship to go off of. It could be that there were three different authors, or that Ezra wrote them all, or that the chronicler is the author of them all. Uh, My own opinion is that Ezra wrote all three, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Chronicles. Let me give you a brief outline of Ezra. We'll be in for the next several months. A brief outline of Ezra. Ezra chapters 1 through 6, the first half of the book, is a history of the returning exiles before Ezra even comes on the scene. A history of the returning exiles before Ezra even comes on the scene. It's a span of about 80 years. In Ezra chapter 1, we're going to see a Persian decree to return and rebuild. In Ezra chapter 2, you're going to get a list of those returning. In Ezra 3 through 6, you're going to get some external opposition and how God's people overcome it. And then in Ezra 7 through 10, God's going to tell the story over again. God's going to tell the story over again in a different way from a different angle. In Ezra chapter 7, Persian decree to Ezra and other returnees. Okay, chapter one, we've got a decree of release. In chapter seven, you've got a decree for more to be released. In Ezra two and in Ezra eight, a list of returnees. You're getting people that are coming back from exile. And in the last two chapters of Ezra, Ezra nine and 10, there's internal opposition to the rebuilding of God's temple and how that internal opposition is overcome. So we've got kind of a double letter or a double book here. We've got the story first before Ezra, the story after Ezra, but they follow very similar themes, and you'll see that as we go throughout the book. Let's look at verse 1 together this morning, and I'm going to give a little bit more history and background as we go through. But in verse 1, the Word of God says that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation passed throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Our first character in this great book, this book of Ezra, is King Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus had spent his younger years conquering numerous tribes and cities north of Babylon, what is today Iran. And after his defeat of the Babylonians in 539 BC, a clean defeat without much resistance, similar to the fall of the Roman Empire, Cyrus went on to implement 
a significant change in the political policy of what was now his empire. Long story short, Cyrus was a good politician. In the very first year of his reign, he wanted to hit the ground running, and he had good reasons too. We know from other passages in the Old Testament that the governing strategies of the former Babylonian Empire were very strict, you might say, totalitarian and dictatorial, all the way down. My kingdom, my rules, my gods, deal with it. That's kind of the Nebuchadnezzar policy. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, required Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and everyone else in his empire to come and bow down before the golden statue that he had made. And that story was recorded in Daniel chapter 3. Because of Nebuchadnezzar's military power and his political prowess, this strategy worked to keep his empire together for a number of years. But over time, people grew weary and restless from the regulations and prohibitions in every area of their lives. You should be hearing some similarities to our own context. Cyrus, on the other hand, had a different approach. He was a dictator, but he was more of an enlightened and tolerant dictator. In order to keep the empire placated, he allowed everyone to return to their own lands and worship their own gods. This, you might say, had the effect of cooking with grease. Means that it works really well. Now, I just want to stop for a minute here to say that we live in a country ruled by a similar kind of soft totalitarianism. You know that the first Marxists and communists in the world tried to put socialism and the socialist revolution into effect by force and they wanted it to happen immediately. Though initially successful, the long-term result, history tells us, was a colossal failure along with the destruction of countrywide industries and the murder and starvation of hundreds of millions of people. Over the last 70 to 80 years, the totalitarians have changed their strategy. They've adopted the softer approach, making their long march through the institutions, slowly eroding Christian culture, and taking dominion by taking control of hearts and minds. They intend to hold on to their control through giving you a sense of freedom and wealth, and amusement, none of which they really want you to have. It's a means to an end. And brothers and sisters, if you're not already aware, please do be aware that this is the play that's being run on us right now in America, and it's very similar to the play that Cyrus ran over his empire about 2,500 years ago. Now let me talk a little bit more about Cyrus's long-term strategy when we get to verse 2. But there's something right here in verse 1 that we need to see, and if we don't get anything else before the end of our time, this is solid gold. Look at verse 1 again. It says, In order to complete the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah... What word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah? What prophecy is he talking about? If you've read the prophecy of Jeremiah, he's actually talking about a number of prophecies, at least five, and there are more 
potentially that could be included in this thought. From Jeremiah 16, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had banished them. For I will return them to their own land which I gave to their forefathers. Let me give you one more from chapter 24, verses five and six. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, like these good figs that Jeremiah had seen, so I will recognize as good the exiles of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good and will return them to this land and I will build them up and not pull them down and I will plant them, and I will not uproot them. I could go on from chapter 29, verse 10, from chapter 30, verse 3, chapter 32, verse 37. Even Isaiah has a prophecy explicitly stating the name of Cyrus and what would happen. From Isaiah 44, verse 28, the Lord says to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasure. And the Lord says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt. And of the temple, its foundation will be laid. At the very least, brethren, what can I tell you this morning? Our God is a promise-keeping God. Our God keeps his promises. Ezra tells us that in order to fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy, God did what? Well, he didn't have a lot of respect for people's individual autonomous choices. The text says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent out a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. Now, wait a minute. Chris, you just finished telling me that Cyrus did this as a political move to establish and maintain control. But you're saying that God was working through him to make that happen. That's exactly right. That's exactly what the Bible tells us. He did. What was really going on here, beloved? Whatever the absolute sovereign of the universe decreed would happen. Whatever God said would take place. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the thoughts of a man's heart, but it is the counsel of Yahweh that will stand. Proverbs 21.1, a king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Christ the King, God is sovereign over governments and over kings and over rulers and authorities and dominions. And yes, I say this, he is sovereign over everything. Do you realize how many decisions led up to the moment where Cyrus would conquer Babylon and have the authority to make a decree for his own selfish motives, mind you, I'll get into that more in a minute, that the people of God Almighty would return to their own land and rebuild God's temple 
so that Jesus Christ could come and stand before that temple as our representative and be condemned for our sin, to be a substitute for us so that the veil of that second temple would be torn in two from top to bottom and so that all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, could return from their exiles in sin and participate in the family of God. Acts chapter 4 tells us this is the case. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? Whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Beloved, if you are not comfortable with the sovereignty of God, we're going to make our way through a book, and that's one of the main topics. God is absolutely sovereign over every dance of every particle in this universe. Do you understand the significance of the sovereignty of God? What does it mean? It means that the city council that we have in Anderson County now, after the election, is the one that God decreed in his eternal wisdom that we would have. It means that every vote that was cast this last week was cast in line with the divine wisdom of the Almighty. The opposition that we will now face to create a sanctuary county in Anderson County and before the commissioners has been divinely set by an all-powerful, all-knowing God who does whatever he pleases. And that's just local politics. Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, producing peace and creating calamity. I am Yahweh, who does all these things. Beloved, this is likely the best thing that you're going to hear all day long. God is absolutely sovereign. He is in control, not just of politics, but of everything, which means that nothing in the universe is ever meaningless. It is all full of meaning. Nothing happens by chance. Since I became convinced of the unassailable sovereignty of God in all things, I've often wondered how people who haven't seen it yet deal with hurt and tragedy. I'm getting older and I'm still unmarried with no direction in my life. My dad has had back pain as long as I've been alive. Our family business feels like a money pit. My mom has had severe migraines since I was a baby. We had to watch our child go through brain surgery. My wife had a massive heart attack that almost killed her. 
I've been through a horrific divorce. Our baby had all sorts of abnormalities and didn't live long. My husband has cancer. Our mom died shortly after a gruesome car accident. With all the tragedy in the world, some people just want to say, what are you doing up there? What is he doing for us Christians? What is he doing for his people? What is he doing for those who love God? He's working all things together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, you can trust the Almighty. In Christ, you can't help but receive graciously from his hands together with Jesus all things. You can't help it. You're going to get all things whether you want it or not. God's going to get them to you. You're his child. He gives you with Christ all things. I heard it once said that if we as human beings had the omnipotence, which is the unlimited power of God, we would go around the world and we would tinker with all sorts of stuff. But if we could at the same time have that omnipotence, that unlimited power, and also have God's omniscience, that he knows all things, we wouldn't change anything. So what's going to happen in November at the midterms? Whatever God says. Whatever God says. What are you going to do if inflation keeps going up and your job gets cut or you lose your retirement? Well, Jesus taught us to go out into a field and sit down and look at birds and flowers and ask yourself, how much are they worrying? They're not. And neither should we. What about my kids getting older and being on their own? What if I've not done the best job parenting? What if I mess up? Christian parent, obey God. Parent as well as you can. And then go home and sleep like a Calvinist. God's in control. Any good thing that comes out of our kids through our parenting has nothing to do with our parenting but God's grace. I heard this last week that conservative Chief Justice John Roberts was trying his darndest to get the other conservative justices to flop sides on the Dobbs decision that recently overturned Roe v. Wade. He admitted in an interview that after the ruling was leaked, that they were going to overturn it, none of the other justices could be convinced to change their minds, and the enemy's plan backfired. Our God's sovereign. He's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Have no fear, beloved. You have a role, so play it well. When God has you on stage, act your part and repent of anxiousness and trust our sovereign God. Let's look briefly at verse two and then we'll look at verse three and four in conclusion. Verse two, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, 
Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed to me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, you may be asking at this point, did Cyrus not care about the Jewish God? Verse 2 makes it sound like he was a worshiper of Yahweh. Now, it is possible, that is one possibility, that Cyrus was a converted king of Persia, and that he was actually a worshiper of Yahweh. Josephus records that someone actually came up to Cyrus, showed him the prophecy from Isaiah 44 that I read earlier, and said, look what the Jewish prophet said about you. And Cyrus was like, oh yeah, I'm going to set to work to make that happen. That's actually what Josephus thought happened. I think it's unlikely, though, Cyrus did send out this proclamation to the Jews, which, yes, does acknowledge God by his divine name, and also seemingly admits that God had given him all of the kingdoms of the earth and appointed him personally to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But, as I told you at the beginning, Cyrus is a politician, and he played this game everywhere all across the Persian Empire. In 1879, a clay cylinder known now as the Cyrus Cylinder, one of the last extent uh, pieces or artifacts of literature from the Persian time period that we have left outside of the Bible. Most of what we know about Persia, we get from Scripture. Outside of that, we have this clay cylinder called the Cyrus Cylinder. It was discovered in the area of ancient Babylon. By the way, the reason we don't have much from the Persians is because the Greeks conquered the Persians and they didn't really care about their history, so they got rid of it. There you go. He who wins the wars writes the history books. The markings on the outside of the Cyrus Cylinder agree with the Bible's account of this event and many others. Here's an excerpt. This is Cyrus in the testimony from the Cyrus Cylinder. He said, I returned to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time. The images which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. To Marduk, my lord. May they say this, Cyrus the king who worships you and Cambyses his son. Now what is important for our study this morning, beloved, is that God used a sinful pagan worshiping king to carry out his divine plan and bring his people home. Commentator Derek Kidner states that the homage paid in verse 2 to the Lord was doubtless a diplomatic courtesy, yet... Sincere enough in its way, it was important to frame the decree correctly for each repatriated group, and the God of heaven was how the Jews described their deity. Moreover, to a polytheist of Cyrus's wide sympathies, it would seem clear that all of the gods had willed his triumph. Therefore, each in his proper context could be thanked for it. Now, I'll say this. What Cyrus was engaged in for us is a terrifying truth. 
You can walk the walk and you can talk the talk and look on the outside like you look and worship the God of heaven and at the same time, you can be a God hater. Until I started studying for this sermon this week, I had always read verses one through four as Cyrus was a converted king. Had no idea there was a possibility that he was playing this game all across his empire. Beloved, you can have closets full of idols and access to the best food and living and sex and more money at your fingertips than you can conceive of and you can still go to hell. In short, you can gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. Let me ask you, professing believer, Paul commands the Corinthians to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith. Is your profession genuine or is it your Sunday ruse? You've made a public profession of faith. That is good. I did as well when I was 12 years old. Did anything change in your life after your profession? Nothing changed in mine. I was told that I got my ticket to ride and I went off to live like more of a hellion than I ever had. Dr. Glenn Sunshine says, if you really want to know what you believe in your heart of hearts, look at what you do and not what you think you believe. He brings up a good point. Beloved, this is the reason that we need the local church. God saves us individually. He exposes our sin before our eyes. He lets us see the darkness. He lets us see the rebellion. He leads us by his grace through the gospel preaching to repentance and faith. He saves all of us that way. But how many have done the monkey see, monkey do? Oh, well, I don't want to be on the outside. I want to be in. What do I do? Say the words, pray the magic prayer, and there you are. In a church full of light with a heart full of darkness. Beware. We need the church of Jesus Christ for this very reason. Because professors are not perfect. They just become continual repenters. They repent and enter the kingdom of God, and then they spend the, less, the rest of their lives being sanctified through repentance and continual coming again to Jesus. Now, if you have never entered the kingdom of God the first time through that repentance and that faith in Christ, I plead with you, today is the day of salvation. God may not give another day. You may feel, have felt protected since you've been here or even on your way here this morning, but there are no guarantees when we leave this place if we're going to rebuild Christendom and we're going to restore it the way that God wanted to, our covenant family and hearing from this covenant body, Christ the King, you're out of line. You've sinned against God. You need Jesus. Turn, repent, and us continually coming together to repentance. That's what we need. If you find in yourself a, a hard and stubborn heart when people in this church confront you about your sin and you are unable to come to grips with it and repent, it could be that you need to go back to the cross and look again to Christ and ask yourself, have you really put all your hope and your trust in Jesus? I don't want to cause anybody to doubt their faith unnecessarily, but we live in a, a pool of easy believism. So be cautious, be careful, 
Cyrus spoke the words that claimed he was a worshiper of heaven, but he had a heart full of idols. If that's you, today is the day to repent. Well, let's conclude with verses 3 and 4 briefly. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. You hear it there. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. He's just the God in Jerusalem. He's not the God of the universe. He's not the God of the nations. He's just that God that lives in that place. So everyone who remains at whatever place he may sojourn, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Well, you see in verses 3 and 4, they conclude Cyrus's decree and edict that was to be published across his empire. Here, all the Jews to the farthest reaches of Persian control were commanded to set out for their homeland and rebuild not just the temple, but the regular sacrifices and worship of the Lord. He speaks directly to the survivors. It's likely a reference to the exiles. That's the word that we're familiar with from Peter recently. And he also speaks to the men of his place. It's likely those born in your house or bought with your money, to use Old Testament language. And he gives them silver and gold, supplies and animals, and even an initial inventory of animal sacrifices to begin to work with. So what is essentially going on here? Have you seen or heard this story before? You should have. Second book of the Bible. This is a new exodus. This is God bringing his people out of bondage and slavery and setting them free to worship him again. Think about Moses for a minute. He brought the captive Israelites out of Egypt and leads them to construct a tabernacle made from Egyptian gold and materials. By the way, Solomon did the exact same thing when he built the first temple using the spoils of war that his father David had collected. Zerubbabel will, in the coming chapters of Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuild this second temple with the gold taken from the nations. And the final and great exodus, the one that Jesus led, redeems his people out of their slavery in sin He builds the temple of God in the hearts of every Christian everywhere, regardless of locality or nationality. In building his abode, the scriptures tell us that he took captivity captive. Wait a sec. Captivity's in prison now. You can never go captive in Christ ever again. Once saved, you will persevere till the end. Captivity is gone. Jesus took it captive. And then Jesus did what? He gave gifts to men. Why? So we could build Christendom. It's a new exodus, beloved. That's exactly what God is telling us through this text. As new covenant believers, what do we see here? We see the new Exodus. Ezra is authoritative and instructive for our lives in Anderson County in 2022. This text, written about 2,500 years ago. If you're in Christ, 
then God, through Christ, has led you out of the darkest Egypt. He has called you into his marvelous light. You are now a kingdom of priests to our God, offering to him spiritual sacrifices through the gifts that he gave you for the purpose of building his kingdom. And that is our exact intention in Anderson County. Through the preaching of the gospel, we intend to see Jesus' house, his church, built. That is why evangelism is a part of the DNA at Christ the King and should be for any biblical church. As conversions take place, the church expands and grows and we, through the gifts of grace that God has lavished on each of us, will together teach these people to obey everything that Jesus commanded. So a brief point of application. This is where Southern Christianity with its Sunday, Wednesday only devotion times is woefully inadequate. But that's more than most Christians do. Stop comparing yourself to men. You have one judge, the Bible says, even God, Regulating the building of the kingdom of God to what seems right to us is not the biblical standard. Yes, there is a ditch on the other side of the road. Ignoring your God-given responsibilities of family, work, and personal care for the sake of the church is sinful. It's wrong. The Jews who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild this second temple and the walls around the city still had to feed their families. They still had to care for their wives and children. Some people would help more directly with the work, the building of the temple and the walls, while others worked the farms and provided the food. Everybody had a part to play. But from our text this morning, and I'll talk more about this next week, it's enough that we know that God has given us a charge, just as he did 2,500 years ago, to these Jewish exiles returning to build him a house out of the wreckage of Western Christendom and that we don't get to tell him when we are available. Sunday, Wednesday, that's my church time. Nope. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and lavished you with grace gifts so whenever he needs you, you're there. How many of the churches that taught us these are the times you're supposed to be doing the work of the Lord? Jesus has already put out that candle. So as I close, I say to you, brothers and sisters, trust our sovereign God. There is no need to fear the great rebuilding project that we have been given when the Lord of armies is on our side. If you have not bowed the knee to King Jesus today, it may be the last opportunity that you get. The Bible says that his wrath is quickly kindled and blessed are all those who take refuge in him. If you have been delivered from your captivity to sin through the cross of Christ and by faith in his name, he set you free to build him a kingdom. Come along with us and help build God's house in Anderson County. What is God asking you and your family to do? For most, it will just mean prioritizing the church in a way that you haven't thought of doing 
for all of your life. Unless providence hinders you, being a part of regular prayer meetings and evangelism and the men's psalm singing and the other things that our church is offering, those are some of the things that it might look like. For some, it will look like continuing to pray for God to allow you to move to Anderson County. It may mean starting that business that God's told you to start and you're just too afraid. This is going to take generations, beloved. But the end of our part of the story is the same one that Ezra and Nehemiah were looking forward to. The prophet Isaiah said, and remember, God keeps his promises. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. So, let's get to work. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word as it illumines and helps us to understand our task that remains in this world. It empowers us through the working of the Holy Spirit, burying this word deep down in our hearts that we might walk in ways that are obedient and pleasing to you and that favor might rest continually and with great strength on your people. We pray that that would be the case as we begin Ezra and Nehemiah. Would you help us to understand your will for how we can build your kingdom in this local community in Clinton, Tennessee? The charge that you have given us, let us keep it faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.